You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, as we just jump right into our passage here in 1 Thessalonians, we're uh, being taught about the family that God forms through his church. As we gather as a local church together, we're an expression of God's work in the world in a specific location. And when we think about what we're doing as a family together, uh, we, we kind of title this section of scripture as the church as a committed family. We've talked about familiar, uh, and, and by that I mean family-oriented metaphors that are happening throughout the scriptures, but especially in the book of First Thessalonians. So today as we jump into this, I think about that word committed, and I, I do a little bit of comparison. Think about the difference between committed uh, or a commitment and obligation. A commitment and an obligation, right? There's some semantic overlap. There can be some, some meaning that connects between the two. But pretty early in our lives, we start to realize and, and figure out that there's some difference in them, right? Commitments are things that we choose to do because our heart is into them. It's typically how we use that word. Obligations are things that we have a sense of duty for, and mostly because we want to avoid the negative consequences of not doing whatever that obligation is that we're supposed to do. So in my life, uh, I've come to realize it's not as simple as simply saying taking out the trash is an obligation and praying before meals is a commitment. The reality is, is I can do either one out of a sense of duty and obligation or out of a heart commitment and a desire to really do what's there. Either one can be at play. So sometimes we get mixed up in our minds and we do the wrong thing, right? Sometimes we go out on a date with our wife as an obligation. You been there? Just, just me, right? You have to show up. You have to be there. You actually had to put on a clean shirt. You had to do this. And you made sure you knew it and you probably heard about it later. That's what you made that feel like. And then we get mixed up in our mind that having a commitment is getting to watch football on a Sunday afternoon, right? It's a commitment. I am dedicated. This has to happen today. My heart is behind that, right? So we see that. I can see there may be still some questions on how that works out, the difference between those needed commitments and obligations. So we'll keep working on that. But as we think about that difference that plays out in our lives, it comes out in many things that we do together. Think about travel, right? Have you ever chatted with somebody who travels for their job? If you're not someone who travels for your job, you have this view of travel as this great and glorious thing, and you can't wait to book flights, and you love staying in a hotel, and you love eating out. And then if you talk to somebody who travels a lot for their job, you hear them talk about their flights, talk about the meals they had, how bad the hotel rooms are. There's a completely different understanding between what they have to do and what their heart might be behind if they were traveling on their own. So Paul in this passage uh, is giving us a sense of the church. Should we be viewing our time at church as merely an obligation, something that we do as a duty that God has placed in our life? Or is there something more than that? Is there a need to put our heart into that commitment? A something different that comes in both outcomes as well as intensity and change our approach entirely to how we view our time in and gathered as the people of God. So as we jump into our, our passage together, we get to one big idea, and that's that God's faithful family commits to one another deeply. God's faithful family commits to one another deeply. And this commitment comes out in three elements of what a gospel-formed family commits to one another. Three things that we're going to see together. The first one of these is recognizing the crown that our church family is. 
recognizing the crown of what our, first, uh, our church family is. We see this in chapter 2 at the very end there of this chapter. We get a, a cool passage that goes over the chapter markers in our Bible. And as we look at those verses in the end of chapter 2 in 17 through 20, we, Paul makes reference to the events we've touched on, on the, over the last couple of weeks on the founding of the church in Thessalonica. In Acts 17, we hear about the hasty departure of Paul and Silas. And, and basically, as they reflect back on the difference of what they've been received in the area of Berea versus what they received in Thessalonica, they saw a very different thing. It was a hard setting in Thessalonica. They got basically chased out of town. And as they reflect on that, they're writing this letter back to that Thessalonian church. And one of the emphases that Paul begins to make is about proximity or, or spatial location. And so he talks about his own presence and absence is what he starts on in these verses. And the difference between presence and absence helps us see why the church family is a crown for us. And we'll define that a little bit more in a second. But as we think about that difference, presence and absence makes the difference here. So in verse 17, we can see that he goes at length to describe the circumstances of being torn away from the Thessalonians. The, the word there that's used is Paul's actually using a really vivid word picture as he's using this to translate the idea of being torn away as actually being like orphaned like being taken away because of the really tough circumstances so that the parental responsibility and circumstances are taken out of the Thessalonians' life and they're actually left alone without that support. This familial or family-oriented metaphor continues to hammer home the idea of the church as family. So while this absence is experienced between Paul and the Thessalonians, he makes clear that the absence was about being in person, physicality and not in his heart. His heart was clearly still with the Thessalonians. Then he goes on to describe in those, those following verses, you go down, let your eyes go to verse 18 and 19, you see that he goes on to tell us at a high level, without a lot of specifics, that Paul endeavored to actually visit the Thessalonians. Sounds like Paul tried to do it. Maybe he looked at booking some tickets. Maybe he started planning a road trip. Maybe he made some inquiries if he'd be allowed back into town. We don't get a lot of details, but he tells us that he tried. He was trying and endeavoring to see them. But, tells us in verse 18, at the end of that, that he was hindered by Satan, or the Satan that hindered him. The term, the Satan, and yes, it has a, a definite article in front of it, is in reference to a specific spiritual being who is our adversarial accuser. The hindering that Paul talks about isn't Given us, he doesn't give us any more specifics about that either. He describes it with this wording that Satan has blocked his path. He's made it impassable. He's using kind of a military word here. If you, you think about oftentimes what happens in developing countries as war starts to break out and there's a division of areas, they take a road and they cut down trees. They dig pits in the road. They stop people from being able to get from one end of the country to the other. That's the word picture that we're getting here that, that Satan has done for Paul. He's blocked his way and put a roadblock from him getting to get to the Thessalonians. We can get caught up in this language and miss a little bit of the important lesson here of what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that being present with this church family that he founded in Thessalonica was of great importance. It was of such importance, he's heartbroken that he had to leave them, and the only reason he's not able to get back to them is because Satan has hindered them. So what he starts to reference for us is an understanding about what presence means versus absence. Presence with the people of God together, face-to-face, -face, is essential. So as a church family, we can't miss this importance that's placed on presence, right? Absence can happen for many valid reasons. 
Hindrance can occur for any of us, certainly. But in-person presence means that as gathering as the people of God, face-to-face, we're able to do so much more. It's what we should long for. It should be the norm. Seeing others embodied in worship together, hearing their voices, seeing their expressions, being able to reach out and embrace or lend a hand to someone that we see in person is essential. It's what we're supposed to do as the people of God in gathering together in close proximity and actually being the church together. We get that from Paul's understanding of and desire and importance he places on presence for this church. And that's one of the reasons he values them. He sees them as a crown. But then secondly, in verses 19 and 20, we see that another spatial proximity kind of thing is happening here that that motivates him to see the value of the church and that is Jesus' coming. Look at those words in verses 18 and 19. Jesus' coming helps to see the crown that our church family is. So the return of Jesus, that he's going to come back to the thir- this earth, is like a glass cleaner on eyeglasses, right? It's a, it brings this theological clarity to us as a way of pulling away filth, distractions, things that kind of obscure your vision, and they let us gaze rightly at what's important providing the right focus to see the return of Jesus means I live, think, and believe differently. It's this return of Jesus that causes Paul to ask rhetorically, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting for our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? So Paul is saying affirmingly that the Thessalonian church is for Silas and he, their hope, their joy, their crown of boasting. In verse 20, he makes it even clearer, calling the Thessalonian church their glory and joy. So this idea of crown, right? It references that ancient athletic crown that would be given to the victor. You know, the little green shrubbery thing that kind of sits on their head when they win like the Olympics or something. That's the concept here behind crown. Not exactly the crown jewel concept, but something that would be awarded in a contest. So when we think about this, it it, it had me thinking of uh, the Stanley Cup. Hockey season starting. You probably know I'm a hockey fan. And it's the time of season when all the teams say our goal for the year is winning the Stanley Cup. That's like every team's goal, right? You ask them, what's your goal this year? Oh, we want to win the Cup, you know? Um, and that's what they go for. But what's interesting, right, is we start the season and we're talking about this trophy, this thing that we're looking ahead for, something that everyone wants to win and go towards. But what's interesting is once a team actually wins the Stanley Cup, you might hear some comments, it was great, something they always dreamed of as a child, holding the cup, that moment of doing it, and, and it's great. But there's often a coach or maybe the captain, or, or some of the veterans who are on the team, who reference the team, right? They talk about how the team coming together was actually part of the prize. It was part of the enjoyable part of the process. Lifting up some hardware is great, but coming together, the sacrifices, the camaraderie that's required to bring about reaching that actually becomes a reward in itself. And you see these players oftentimes have lifelong friendships and relationships out of championship teams because of that commitment and that joy that comes in it. More than just the trophy itself, the people become what's exciting, what's the enjoyable, enduring element, as you have to give the trophy back. But the people and the relationships last much longer. So it is the same way in the church that Paul's describing here. He's saying our goal, we don't actually get another trophy, you don't actually get a green crown if you're looking for that type of thing, it doesn't doesn't come with it. But the point is, is the relationships. The point is, as we look around the room and we see one another and the people that we have spent time with, given our lives together to be the people of God in this place, you're actually one another's crown and joy and hope. 
When you think about that, oftentimes we think about it as a church planner who puts his time in a church and sees something come out of nothing. And certainly that church body is a crown to them. Maybe as a pastor, we stand and we look over a congregation and we think, this is the people that I'm giving my life to. But more than that, it's for each and every one of us. As you have put your time into loving and caring for the people that are gathered with you in this church, and you put that time in year after year after year, Paul is telling us, you actually start to get what's the goal. You know that when Jesus returns, that's what you will value. That's when you will see the importance of these relationships and all that God is doing through them for you. So that's our hope. That changes our focus. So believing the gospel together, laboring together for our community, loving our sons and daughters to Jesus, holding hands through pain and sorrow, rejoicing together in marriages, births, God's goodness, weeping together in illness and sorrows and death. There's nothing else to say this, nothing else than to say that this specific church, these specific people, the people God has placed me with together in this life, these are my hope. They are my joy that I look forward to to await Jesus' return. That brings us really to our second element. So if that's the first thing, if you have that value, that mindset of what the church is, then the second action that Paul takes makes a lot of sense to you. He reacts with concern for his church family. And let's start uh, looking at the start of chapter 3 in verses 1 through 10. He reacts with concern for the church family. We'll just look at these first five verses there on the screen to start with, and I'll talk about those a little bit, and then we'll go to the, the remaining verses in just a moment. But as we, we get to uh, these verses in 1 through 5, we see that there's concern for the Thessalonians because of their hardship and persecution. In verse 3, we see the response from Paul is because there's concern that, uh, that no one be moved by these afflictions, that they not be put um, out, of, out of place. Now, at first glance, we might have questions about who's having the afflictions and hardships. Paul is thinking about the Thessalonians, then he broadens it to his own persecutions and his own challenges, and then he makes kind of a broader statement that says, really, all Christians should expect there to be hardship and persecution. That's part of what we're going through together. And so he sets that up as, as really a, a normality that is present. Really, the norm is that churches and the people of God should be having hardship and persecution in a broken world and a place where the Satan is working against us. That's the norm. We might have seasons where that's not taking place and we can enjoy them and see them, but we shouldn't at all be surprised when we face adversity in this world, when we face the hardships around that. So in reality with that, we think as a church together, okay, we might be in a season where we aren't seeing that as heavily and, and much coming against us, but these words prepare us for that. Get us ready to accept that kind of challenge of hardship and persecution. So how does Paul respond in concern? Well, first off, he responds in concern with his airtight emotions coming out. Airtight emotions coming out. So Paul reacts, you see this uh, at the beginning there in verse 1, and then again in verse 5, when he says, we could bear it no longer, or when I could bear it no longer. These words are about an airtight container that finally lets it out. So Paul's like Tupperware, is the, the concept that I had in my mind. I was reading there, he's like Tupperware, okay. So now the analogy for this is not meaning that Paul is like never able to find the right lid to go on top in the never piling of Tupperware. That, that's not the illustration today. The idea of airtight Tupperware here is that seal, right? That it's, it's bottled up so that nothing can spill out, nothing's coming out of the container. 
Paul is saying his emotions are like that. They're kind of bottled up, and now he's gotten to the point under such clarity and under this intense situation of persecution and hardship because of his absence from the Thessalonian church that he can't help but let his emotions out. They start to pour out from the Tupperware. So think about it. When we usually think about our emotions coming out and bursting forth, it's usually not a good scene, right? When we think about those emotions coming out, it's probably anger. It's probably a sense of frustration that finally boils over and comes out. But Paul's view of emotions here is love. He's saying that really that that pent-up love that he has for the Thessalonians under the level and scrutiny of the situation that they're under pours out in love before them. Pretty convicting to think about how we use our emotions oftentimes, but that points to what we should be doing. In a real sense, there are normal expressions of love and care that we have for one another, and yet in extreme situations of hardship and suffering and persecution, we should be even more free to let our love be expressed in both word and action and let that be known among our body, looking to do that. But the second emotion that Paul comes up with in his concern is not only that idea of his airtight emotions coming out, which is really love. Secondly, he has concerns showed for fear of giving up, fear for giving up. So you see these in these remaining verses uh, in the section in, in uh, verses 4 and 5 there. Paul is concerned that under the situation, the believers there will give up, and he's fearful of that. We know this kind of fear. It might sound a little funny to read it in the, in the text of Scripture, right? But we have fear for our friends. We fear for our aging parents. We fear for our children, right? They, they make a decision. They step in a direction, and we're fearful. Like, we feel it. We're like, oh, I'm, I'm not glad about how that's going to go. I'm worried about their next move here. Maybe this isn't going to go well. That is what he's talking about in a church context. As we see hardship or suffering on another in our our midst, a response that's normal is is some fear. Like, are they going to respond rightly in this? Are they going to do this? And he has that fear uh, exhibited toward them. But he doesn't just leave it there. He he does something about these emotions, this pouring out of love, this fear that he has for them in verses 6 through 10. If we go to those verses, the action that he takes with this concern is he looks for a report and a reminder. A report and a reminder in verses 6 through 10. So the report that happens, remember he sent Timothy from Athens to go and get a report to know how the Thessalonians were doing. And now Timothy has come back to Paul, possibly in Corinth and elsewhere. And Paul says that the report is good news. He actually uses a word that we're pretty familiar with, gospel. He's actually using the word gospel here for good news. So that what's being displayed is really gospel good news of love and faith that's on display. Their love and faith is there. We can see the gospel working out in their lives, and that's the report that Paul gets that helps him to know that his love has taken effect and he no longer has to be fearful of them. So think about that. That's the goal that he's looking for. He's looking for them to respond with faith and love. When we face suffering physically in our bodies, or pressures of our broken world and our marriages and child-rearing in our professions or our ministry, what we want or what we long for in one another is to see that we are living the gospel out. We long to see proof or evidence of faith and love, and that's what we're praying for and exhorting and comforting one another to do in this life. So then we come to uh, a summarized uh, of these words in verse 8. He talks about this as standing fast in the Lord. This is a reminder. 
So basically, Paul reminds the Thessalonians, you know when you stand on a beach and you feel the waves crashing against your feet. You try to stand firm, right? It's kind of fun to do that for a little while, right? You stand there, you think, I'm not going to move. That waves keep coming. You might make it for a little while, but eventually your feet start shifting and you eventually, I'll tell you from experience, you go down, right? That is what Paul is saying. When you get unshaken, if you're not standing firm in Christ, ultimately you will become weakened and not be able to stand and ultimately you will fall. We've seen that. You feel that in your own lives, right? When we don't stand firmly on Christ, we can see we might make it for a little while, but we turn and we fall away. So this reminder that Paul is giving to the Thessalonians uh, brings him to even make a comparison that like hearing that they're standing fast and doing well is like, like life to him. He's like living in that. So they're no longer in death. Their, their importance of actually standing firm under these persecutions and trials wells up within him gratitude to God. You see that in verses um, verse, uh, 9, 9 and 10. You can see how he comes out with gratitude to God for how the Thessalonians have stood up. So can you feel this, this response that Paul has? This love for this church that's coming out very clearly for them, the value that he places on one another for the believers. Then the concern he shows for them in their hardship and persecution. And then seeing them do so well under it, he's so grateful to God that he responds then with his final words in 11 through 13. He responds with a wish for his church family in verses 11 through 13. We call this kind of a wish prayer, or sometimes we refer to it as a benediction, a good word. So basically, Paul wraps up the section in summary. His heart is so full of what God has done, he expresses himself in a wish, like what he wants to have happen for the Thessalonian church. But because Paul can pray to God and he's writing it in a letter, he doesn't just have to like wish it, let it go into the air. He actually puts it as a, a, as a prayer to God. And he has two main requests. In verse 11, he's praying that, remember that roadblocked path that was there that the Satan put in his way, wouldn't let him come to the people? He prays, first off, that that way is made clear. He's asking for a clear way that he can be directed to their presence. So think about it. Instead of that roadblock and trees in the way, he's asking that God just put an autobahn right in his way so he can get right back to the Thessalonians and enjoy the presence with them again. And then secondly, he prays then in the latter half in verses 12 and 13, he's praying that they would increase and abound in the love that they've started to display. Yeah, we want that even more. Supersize that. Continue to put it into play. They want to have more and more love. And it's not love that's just ungrounded and affirming. It has a purpose. The love that is displayed and shown is actually what establishes or makes them steadfast so that they can be blameless and holy until Jesus returns. Pretty, pretty good prayer there to have for a church together and Paul's response for us. There isn't an amen to the end of that section, you'll notice at the end, but I think we would affirm that. We'd say, yes, that, that's what we're looking for in our church together. So hopefully that gives us a sense of where we're going with those three key essentials recognizing the value of the church as our crown, responding in concern to any hardships or persecutions, and finally uh, giving off this wish prayer for folks to continue to abound. So the question really in application is, what if you aren't feeling this level of commitment? What if this doesn't really describe where you're at? Is the church only an obligation? Is it an, if that's present for you, then there's a need to repent. There's a need to think about differently how you viewed your local church. And there's two areas that... I'm going to just call us too quickly, but more that we can mine out in gospel community. 
Why might not you feel the same level of attention to your church family that Paul seems to be describing for a committed church? Well, it may be that we're not feeling this way. It has to do with the lack of presence with our church. You know, presence is a big point of this passage, and so to express love and encouragement and to receive love and encouragement requires presence. It requires that we are with the people of God, the church. If you're not together, if you're not spending the time, then it's hard to have those expressions and feelings that come from it. So I would invite you to stop standing in the periphery, but find yourself coming more and leaning in to having a more consistent presence and kindle your affections for the specific people God has placed for you to know in this place. And then secondly, maybe you're concerned with too many other things in life. Maybe that's why you don't have these same affections and commitment to the church, because you're so committed to so many other things in our lives. I feel this myself at times. If you, if you look around the room and you see the folks that are here, and you know them, and you know that they're here and being the people of God, God's faithful family, and you know the goal is to see them stand holy and blameless before Christ, and that we're together on the mission of God together, how would we live differently if we really believe that? Would you invest differently? Would you serve differently? Love and get along differently with these folks? What would make you happy or what would grieve you if your concern was really with the church and the centrality that they were to you? It would probably bring some things into focus and make some adjustments for us. So as we focus back in, we understand that this is what a committed church looks like. It's something we're all called to, and we hope to see expressed and lived out in our body here. Let's pray.